0: I thought I'd be in a few weeks, but I'm here again this this morning, and so I was up early yesterday after taking my daughter to work It what, she starts at six in the morning on a Saturday, and so I always enjoyed getting up. Me and my wife always say, it's your turn. No, it's your turn. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, maybe we should start rotating with the kids now that they've got their license. Uh, Amen. But anyways, my point is is that I was stayed up in the morning and uh, just sat down to prepare this message. And I must say before I proceed, uh, as I was writing this, I was deeply challenged and convicted in my own heart before the Lord. And um, because just the nature of the message that we want to consider this morning uh, causes us to examine ourselves uh, in light of eternity in light of what we're looking at, which is eternal judgment. And so you'll remember that last, last week we looked at, was we're looking at the elementary principles of Christ in Hebrews chapter six. Um, and as we've been progressing through those, we looked last week at eternal judgment. And uh, that was, as it related, we broke it up into two categories and we're looking at the second category this morning, Last week, just to refresh ourselves, we looked at um, that which relates to the sinner, the unsaved, who doesn't know God. And we looked at the eternal judgment, that is eternal, forever, perpetual. And we looked at various words in scripture, that which relates to Hebrew and Greek, Sheol, uh, Hades and Gehenna, and the lake of fire, uh, that is to come at the great white throne judgment and there where where those that are not saved will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And this is a serious, serious, serious thought. And so as we consider that as it related to the unsaved, there is also a seriousness that relates to the saved. This morning as we sit here in the house of God, as we profess Christ, as we live the Christian life, we must realize likewise we too will also face a judgment. And this is important for us to understand uh, because we need to live in light of this reality. Now, the Bible tells us, uh, uh, and we looked at this, uh, that we as Christians, in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus speaks uh, and he says these words. He says uh, uh, that we, or he that believes in him, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life and so we do not come under the condemnation of sin our sins are forgiven we as our brother has pointed out uh, Christ has dealt with them once and for all perfected forever those who are set apart sanctified and saved amen and the result of that is we as children of God saved. we will not be at the great white throne judgment that we considered in revelation uh, last week we will not partake, we will not be there. Amen, that is uh, not related to us and, and uh, so we, we, This, when Jesus speaks this, this is what in, in, in a sense it's referring to. We have, will not be at that judgment. But that doesn't exclude ourselves from judgment. It might be in a different context in which it is as we'll discover but that doesn't negate the fact that we too will face a judgment as Christians, as we have lived in this life, especially in the context in which how we have served the Lord. And so this is important for us to, to take note of. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, the Bible says, and it's speaking in various contexts, but we'll just make the point, where it says, "'For we know him who said, "'Vengeance is mine, I will repay,' says the Lord." And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, when we talk about the judgment that we're going to face, I'm not here to talk about the punitive aspects that are related to it and we'll see later that that's, in essence, not primarily what it's about. But that doesn't negate the fact that we will face a judgment and this this judgment can play itself out, as we see in Scripture, even as we live this life where judgement begins in the house of God and the the Lord will judge his people and that is, is in the present and in that which is to come when we stand before Christ himself. And so we have to understand that. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is not something to be blasé about. I mean, you read the book of Acts and Annas and Sapphira, they lied to God and they fell dead flat in their face. I mean, we can't, you know, what is that? It's an indication of what we're talking about. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because to know God, to know the truth and not practice the truth is a serious thing. In First Peter chapter 4, verse 17, the Bible says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, the reason why I'm reading this is just to set a tone, just to, uh, us to understand that we're dealing with a serious issue this morning. When we talk, you know, it's people say, well, I've passed from judgment to life, praise the Lord, thank God, and absolutely, amen and amen. We can shout, we can sing. But that doesn't mean we can just sit on our bottoms here this morning and just go through the the mechanics of religion. We have a life to live. We have a job to do. There is the will of the Lord for our lives. There is the world and the will of God. And so all this is very important in the manner in which we conduct ourselves and live our lives this morning. Now just for the sake of it before we do proceed maybe I bet it's best especially for those that are just joining us today that we read from where we're looking at in Hebrews chapter 6 so if you could just uh, look at verse 1 and 2 again this is the series that we've been looking at we're in part 8 just to make you familiar with that where the scripture says therefore leaving the Discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And so we are looking at eternal judgment, but in the context of the saint who is saved, the child of God and so we'll see this in the scripture now let's just define judgment for a minute because when uh, obviously there are various aspects that relate to the term judgment but when we stand before the judgment ourselves and as we'll see and we'll identify that in a moment but this, the, the greek word is uh, krino, which literally means to distinguish to decide to try to condemn, to punish and to decree. And so in judgment, our lives will be examined. The way in which we have lived and the decisions that we have made, the manner in which we have served the Lord will be weighed, it will be taken into account, we will be tried, we will. Jesus himself will distinguish and we will find in scripture there's various aspects that are related to that particular judgment in terms of the words we speak. and I mean, down to fine details that it would uh, cause us to be very sober about these things because they are all relevant and how it all works in the Word of God. But the Lord is the one that is the judge, amen? Jesus himself is the one that will execute this level of judgment as we'll find in the Scriptures. He will examine us, he will try us, he will make those distinctions as he gives a detailed examination of our lives before the Lord. One man described it as the final examination. And in examination it will be, as all is considered in this particular judgment. So what judgment am I talking about? Well, let's look at Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So just take note of that. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body according to what has, uh, or he has done, whether good or bad. And so this is laying down the, the standard, the principle of eternal judgment, which is known as not the great white throne judgment that we looked at last week, but rather the judgment seat of Christ. And note that it says, For we must all appear. And now we talk about the fact that we have passed from judgment into life so we're not talking about the great white throne. We're not talking about this condemnation. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And so we have passed in that sense but nevertheless we will come under judgment ourselves at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the Greek word that is used here and how this has been defined for us so it can be commonly understood is the Greek word here um, uh, for the judgment seat of Christ is the word the bema seat. And so you may have heard that phrase before, the bema seat. And this is where uh, we, we draw as well as another, uh, another scripture where it, we draw this truth from that relates to the judgment seat of Christ because the Lord is the one who will ultimately judge. And so we find that Paul is using this word to the Corinthians, the Bema seat, obviously being a Greek word, Writing to the Greeks, it has a specific relevance. It has a specific insight. It has various applications that we're going to try and, and, and discover. But also, uh, he used the word in the same phrase as he wrote in, to the Romans in the book of, to those in Rome in the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 10. Scripture says, "For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat." For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God, to give an account of ourselves to God. This is at the judgment seat of Christ. This is what we call the bema seat. Now the Greek word uh, uh, here, has a, as I mentioned, has a few applications, but primarily the word literally means a, a step, or to set foot on, or a raised platform. The bema seat, this is from which and from where judgment comes. And so it is important that we distinguish this because when we talk about the bema seat, sometimes Christians uh, uh, see it as only um, as a, you know, seen in a sense as an award ceremony because of one application that we can draw from this, as we'll see from the word Bema, But at the same time, it is a bit more broader than that and primarily it's got to do with the fact, amen, that Jesus Christ is the judge. He is the one that is seated. He is the one on that platform. He is the one in which we will give an account to and he's the one that will judge us on that particular day. Now, in keeping with the scriptures, the Bible says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive according to what we have done in the body, whether good or whether bad. Whether good or whether bad. So let me put this question to you. Will those who have done bad receive a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. See, if it's if, if it's primarily just a reward ceremony, which it does incorporate that, for sure. But um, if that's the case, then the, uh, the the question is, does everyone receive a reward? And so it's in light of that that we must understand uh, this aspect that relates to the bema seat because I will submit to you and I'll show you that in the the manner in which it's being spoken, not everyone will receive a reward. This is very clear in the scripture. Christ, who is at that seat, he is the one that will uh, bring about that particular judgment. The inference is clear that not everyone, uh, um, especially those that have done bad in the Christian life, will stand and receive a reward. You see, the Romans understood clearly what the, the Bemis seat was. They understood it because it, it, to them it was a platform or a throne where the magistrate or ruler would make decisions and pass particular judgment. So when Paul said the Bemis seat, the judgment seat of Christ, the, the Romans knew exactly what he was referring to in relation to this level of judgment. And the Greeks also would have had an understanding of this as well as it related to the issue, the, the word of, the, of a tribunal. So they understood this particular aspect where it involved an examination and ultimately a judgment. And so I I say that this morning because I want to keep in mind and put first and foremost in your thinking the fact that it is the judgment seat of Christ. It is a judgment in which all things would be uh, distinguished, examined, uh, whether we've done good or bad, and that will be brought into an account on this particular day as we stand before the Lord. And yes, out of that judgment will proceed, as we will see, either reward or loss, determined by what we have done in the body. Now, I also want to point out that the Greeks would have had a further understanding of this particular word, Bema seat. And so, because as is rightly pointed out, the Bema seat was also relevant to the fact that it was, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, applied to what they called the, um, well, we know them as the Olympic Games. I think the Greeks, they called them back then. It was the, the Ist- Isthmian Games, is that right? Sam and Jim <laughs> and those Greeks there in the back. <laughs> you see, and so in light of that, this is where we draw this concept of reward. And it gives us a further understanding and insight because we understand that, that we still have today the uh, Olympic Games, which we know the flame, where does it come from? And uh, again, that's a whole other issue. But the point being is, it's, it's lit from there where it began in, in Greece. But the, the point is, is that those that participate uh, uh, in, the, in the Greek Games back in those days There were those that sat and they would, the contestants would have to perform obviously and compete, but at the same time they would be scrutinized by those judges. Isn't that how, how, how if you're participating in any event, there are people who are judging, they are scrutinising, they are watching to make sure that you do everything that's right and required within the rules and the guidelines of that particular event or sport, whatever the case may be, and if you falter, you are automatically disqualified. And so in that sense there is that level of judgement that is being exercised and this is a manner in which we can also understand certain things in the Christian life. And another aspect is once the contestant won uh, that event they then would stand on the podium and they would receive a laurel, um, um, what's the word, reef, that's it and they would put it on their heads and they would be crowned as a result of their feat and accomplishments so that they were the winner and, you know, and all that's associated with it. And so we understand these things as they relate to the Olympic Games. This is also a concept that is associated with the Bema Seat, and, and, and it will show us a manner in which how we should live the Christian life, as we'll see that in a, in a moment. But isn't it true... If you've ever observed these things, how people can be disqualified for just the most serious, littlest things, can't they? And uh, they've and, and and so the issue of disqualification uh, is is also uh, relevant when we consider it as well as into the Christian life, because the Bible even tells us to examine ourselves lest we be disqualified. So. There's those aspects. Paul would later take that analogy and he would refer to this lower reef that they would receive and he would refer to it now as a crown that relates to the Christian at the judgment seat, at the beamer seat of Christ. And so what we're seeing in, in an overview is that we're seeing that the beamer seat represents to us the judgment where Christ is seated and will judge us but we're also seeing that we will be examined And in the context of how we have lived and conduct ourselves in the Christian life and the result will be the reward or it will be loss. And so this is like the final examination. This is what we're living our lives for because one day we're going to give an account. And when you begin to understand that as a Christian and you begin to realise the seriousness of this and really what, what, what are you going to take into eternity? Okay, thank God you're saved. But what rewards are you going to have in eternity? See, this is uh, you, um, really this is something that we should give much more thought to. And so let's do that as we turn to First Corinthians chapter three. First Corinthians chapter three. Now Paul is writing here, and in, uh, actually we'll start from verse eleven. And he's talking about the the foundation and being a minister and God having established the church and them being saved and a part of of the church and so forth. And he says in verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now this is pretty self-explanatory. And it's reiterating that which we have now established because when it says, uh, 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 for that day, for each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. That day is the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ and uh, when we will give an account and what have we built with? Because Jesus Christ is the foundation and how we build on Christ is very, very important. He goes on to say, if anyone builds and he lists the, uh, these uh, uh, gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay and straw. Now are they all of similar value? No. We know that there's two categories just within that itself uh, and the fact that Paul says that each one's work will be tested by fire. And so, if you build your Christian life, so to speak, with gold, silver, and precious stones, if it's tested in fire, it doesn't get burnt up. But if you build your Christian life with wood, hay, and stubble, and it's tested by fire, what's going to happen? It's going to go up in ashes, it's going to go up in smoke. And so, uh, but yet, the scripture says uh, in verse 15, but he himself will be saved as through fire. So, yes, at the end, your soul, amen, will, uh, you will be in heaven, but uh, what will you have? Because the scripture says that right there it says you will either suffer loss or you will have a reward. Now, do you want to go into heaven and suffer loss? Do you or, or do you, would you rather have a reward? Now, we'll look at the motivations later, but still that's, that's the truth, that's the reality. And so, it's in light of that that we have to understand. And Paul, uh, with this in mind, uh, is... is, In actual fact, when you read the Bible and you read the epistles and where Paul has written, one thing you begin to realise that what Paul is saying in these various uh, epistles... Uh, teach us something but they also teach us and show us something about himself because you see Paul was a, a, an exemplary example. When he, what he was saying, what he is writing, he lived out in a manner that when you examine his life and you look at his life and you see his service to God, it, uh, it is second to none. Uh, and so he was a man that had given himself wholeheartedly to the call of God, had bore, had bared immense suffering in his service to God, and yet in light of everything that he endured, he had given himself to the Lord, but he knew in whom he had trusted. Amen. He knew he had a reward. And so when you look at Paul's life, you begin to see an example, something that we ourselves can learn from, something that we ourselves can emulate. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, follow me, M- follow my manner of life. And so we see an example in Paul that, uh, again, when we look at it and reflect it upon our own lives, it brings a deep challenge and even conviction into the manner in which we are approaching and possibly living ourselves in the Christian life. But he lived an exemplary life. And it's why Paul would later talk in his epistles about crowns and rewards. And really that was the focus of Paul's life, and it should be the focus in our lives. You know, one of the things that Paul the Apostle did in order to portray these truths and realities is he used the various analogies. And two specific analogies that he would refer to, as we'll see, was one, athletics, as we've already drawn upon when we looked at the word beamer. And so this issue of being an athlete is something that Paul is drawing upon to teach us spiritual truth, and another one in Scripture is a soldier. And when you consider both of these examples, they deeply challenge the way in which we are to live the Christian life. And we're going to look at those things uh, because they give us an understanding and a particular insight on how we should live the Christian life. In light of the athlete, it's talking about how we should compete according to the rules. And as a soldier, it says we are in a warfare. And And in light of that, we have to have that in mind. It's as, uh, I think it was A.W. Tozer said, um, the world is not a playground, it's a battleground. And so it's true, isn't it? And so in light of these things, we have to understand what the approach should be. And an athlete and a soldier are apt descriptions for us to learn from. So let's look at this again. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now Paul introduces here an issue of, a crown, striving actually for a crown. And it's interesting to note that the context that Paul's writing in, it has to do with the issue of self-sacrifice as we'll see in a moment. But go down to verse 24. He's talking about how he lives his life and how we should be living our lives and how the Corinthians should live theirs. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race... All run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not as with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. Now li- li- listen to those words and just ponder them for a moment because they are very profound. And they teach us something and Paul's trying to deposit this into the Corinthians and the word of God, it's there to deposit into our mind and our understanding so that we would have a right and correct perspective here. And he says, don't you know that all who run all, all in a race all run? But not everyone receives the prize because you have to run in a certain way. You have to run in a certain way, he says in verse 24, to obtain it. And so, and so you have to be, everyone competes for the prize, is temperate in all things, self-controlled. I mean, we know that in the manner in which they prepare themselves and how they try and present present themselves at optimum fitness and performance so that once they, you know, uh, the time comes that they are primed to do their best in order to win. And that gives us an overview. It puts us to shame when we look at that, consider that. But Paul's drawing this analogy of an athlete. And he says they do it to obtain a perishable crown, something that in the end is worth nothing. Nothing and I, And I have observed uh, and i've 've I've, I've stood in awe at uh, uh, people who win particular gold medals and they attain and achieve in their you know their sphere of, of uh of expertise and you look at their lives and from a young age they have they have so, been so disciplined they have been so focused they're up at various hours of the morning in bed by a particular time they the way that they eat they give up their social life because they don't have time for that because they are so vigorous in in training their bodies and in, in managing their time and in, in making sure that they're getting the most out of uh, uh, not wasting any opportunity because when they go to run that race they'll look back and they said I could have done better I, I didn't prepare properly in this area I neglected to do what was required and that's why I haven't performed as the manner in which I should have and yet we see so many of them have taken this approach and I look at that and I think gosh and so they, they we can criticise them and say oh, well it's only a, it's a worthless crown and it is a medal but at the same time It teaches us something valuable about the Christian life and that's why Paul is using it. And so he talks about in verse 26, Paul says, I know my perspective. He says, thus I run not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air. He means he's not aimless. He's not just going from day to day without any focus or perspective or knowing where he's heading and what he's doing. And in light of that, he says in verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. See, Paul is very, he's taking this very seriously. Some would say, oh, that's just, he's too serious. Can you be too serious? Because uh, I tell you, when you look at what Paul's trying to teach us there, he's raised the bar so high that we are to emulate this. We are to learn something from this in the manner in which we approach it. And that's why when you look at these things, you can't help but be challenged. You can't help but even be convicted as we examine ourselves. Because not that we've attained, not that we've been perfected, but we've got to press on, amen, for the upward call, the high call of God. See, this is the same spirit, same disposition. But we have to be vigorous in our approach. And as I've mentioned, tell me an athlete who does not take such a vigorous approach in their in, in their their um, uh, desire to achieve. And so it begs the question: Well, how disciplined are we in our Christian walks? How disciplined are we in our lives? How disciplined are we in our Devotions, how disciplined are we in our prayer life? How disciplined are we in seeking the Lord and reading and coming to church and, and sharing the gospel and, and doing those things that relate to the business of the kingdom of God and our tender attending to our own relationship with God? Now we'll get to the motivation of these things, but these are the realities. And so how are we living? Do we live for self? Or do we live for the world? Or do we live for the, the Lord? Because in light of this, he says, we're doing this to obtain a crown. And if the, the inference is, is if you don't run in the, in the manner that's required, you will be disqualified. And so will everyone receive this crown? You know, we talk about a race and one person gets the crown. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about qualifying for the crown. So we can all qualify for the crown, this particular crown, but it's dependent on how we are approaching our our Christian life and how we are serving the Lord. Let's go to 2 Timothy. This gives us a little bit further insight. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Again, Paul will use this analogy to reiterate this particular truth. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, and also, I mean, Paul's talking again, context, he's talking about training faithful men because that's what's required, faithful men. If, if, the, the whole basis of the Christian life is based on faithfulness. It's not based on how good you are, your talents, your gifts, or, or this or that, how much knowledge you have. It is based upon this level and this level alone, your faithfulness, and in terms of your use to God. But he says in verse 5, and if also if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned. He's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. There's another truth in that, but we won't look there. But in verse 7, "'Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things.'" Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding that you would grasp what I'm trying to illustrate, the truth I'm trying to deposit, what I want you to grasp and see, and how I want you to live and approach the Christian life is what Paul's saying. And so an athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules." You're saying, uh, Pastor Gary, there's rules. Oh my gosh, Christianity is there some rules? Mm-hmm. There are some rules. If you uh, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Does that mean the whole Christian life is about rules? No, you've missed it, as we'll see. Haven't gotten there yet. We're getting there. But nevertheless, this sustains. and so there are rules. There are expectations. Oh my gosh. No, it's all about God's grace. No, there is about God's grace. And it's about God's about God's power. And that's why when we will be judged according to the manner in which we have lived our lives in accordance to sin, because God's given us a grace not to cover our sin, but in order to give us power to live over sin. We've been looking at this in the book of Romans. And if So again, but my my point is is that there are There are rules in this sense. Now, you can't, let me say this, you can't live like this, in this analogy of an athlete, you can't live like this if it's just based on rules, can you? You can't live at that level if your motivation is, well, they're the rules. You won't get too far, will you? It won't sustain you for very long, let's be honest. I, I thought about this. I thought the best way to, for me to illustrate it. I hope this is, uh, people can understand what I'm going to say here. Um, who's familiar with the tennis players Bernard Tomic and and uh, what's the other one? The um, Kurius, Nick Kyrgios. And so now they've come under a lot of criticism of recent times because of their attitude, because here are men who had potential. And yet they are not achieving in their sport because really their their content their motivation is not that they want to be number one in the world. Their motivation is, hey, you know what? Tennis brings in the moolah, and I'm rich, and you're not. So <laughs> that's in effect what happened. <laughs> and so that and so you know what? If that's the motivation. to to compete on that level, then they're only going to achieve so far. They're not going to go that far. But you see, those that attain to number one, number two, number three in the world, those that are pushing for the ultimate, I tell you the difference is, is they are living a a life of self-discipline they are so fixed and focused that they uh, you know after the tennis tournament they're not out at the pub you know hey you know doing this and doing that and all the rest of it you know they they're back at home getting their rest and they uh, uh, and they're back at training and they're back on their diet and they're doing what they're doing because they must be at optimum fitness and focused mentally and physically if they're going to sustain and maintain and be number 1 in the world and what motivates them it's not money it's because they want to achieve. They want to be the best that they can be. And that's what separates people like Federer and the Dogovich and whatever else as compared to the, uh, the Tomics and the Curioses. And that's why they've lost respect for themselves in the sport because they're not seen as... as, as uh, they're seen as doing a disrespect of service to the game itself because their motivations are all wrong. See, our motivations have to be right. When we talk about rules and discipline, we, if we just talk about these things in and of themselves, then you'll think, oh gosh, just, the Christian life's just so hard. But you know what? If you are motivated by a desire to please God, if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, the Bible says that His commandments are not burdensome. You know, they're not burdensome. Sometimes people, I've, I've witnessed to people when they talk about the Christian life and they'll say, oh, it's just a bunch of rules and regulations. How sad is that? And I go, you're right. If that's what it is, it is. It's sad. But you see, I give them an analogy. I said, uh, they, sometimes they're talking with their wife or spouse or whatever or partner or whatever else. I say, do you love this woman? I go, yeah. I go, you know what? You can go and do whatever you want. You don't have to be committed to it. But why are you committed? Why are you bringing yourself to be so constrained to one person? because you love her and love is the motivating factor. You don't have to but you want to because you love her and you want to please her and so that becomes the motivation and so it's what we call the law of love and the law of love is not burdensome. The the law of love is liberating. Hallelujah. Especially when you learn to live the life of self-sacrifice and self-denial and you put your others first. You begin to realise, hey, life's not about me. At one, one stage it's about, oh, well, me, me, the world's an oyster. It's all about me, me, me. And you realise that once you get in that path, you're going to hit a brick wall and you're going to be empty, high and dry. Because the world cannot. Until you learn the transition. That's why God's created family. You know what? When you have children, God breaks that ego spirit. Now, all of a sudden, I've got to live for them. And, all, and I work, 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 work to feed them, to pay the bills. You know what I'm saying, men, and ladies too, because I know you work, so please, I don't want to, uh, you know, we live in times have changed. But I'm talking to men specifically because women, they have all those inbuilt tendencies anyway. But men, uh, we learn things the hard way sometimes. But the point being is is that this is what it's about. And so that's why for a man to be disciplined, to be uh, working, to be providing, to be protecting and to be fulfilling his God-given role in a family, there's nothing more satisfying. Because you know that you are doing the will of God in these things. But again, the point being is the way in which we live this life and uh, we have to compete according to the rules, as Paul says. Now, there's also in Corinthians, uh, sorry, in, in I didn't read it, but we, I did mention the fact that Paul speaks a, another analogy about a soldier. And in, uh, in Second Timothy there, again in chapter 2, uh, Paul writes, and he says in verse 4, now I read verse 5 before, but let's read verse 4. He says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And so here again, Paul's giving us an analogy. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life. You know, when you you enlist in the army, what's the first thing? I haven't been there, so I can't tell you. But I I just understand some basics. But what's the first thing that they set out to do? James. What's that? Teach you obedience. obedience. And so the idea is to break the will, to bring you, uh, to to cause you to yield and be in unto obedience. I mean, uh, and so that you are, and then they train you so vigorously that to, to prepare you for war. Because if you were to ever find yourself in the midst of war and you are not prepared and you are not fit, then uh, (laughs) you're in serious trouble. And so again we're getting another analogy by Paul is that of a soldier. And so uh, here it is, uh, that no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. You can't. Not to, you can't allow yourself to be entangled because, you know what, I have a mission, I have a purpose and this is what I am doing so I'm so focused and fixed on that that I can't let anything else interfere or get in the way or entangle me. The word affairs here in the Greek literally means to a transaction, to negotiate. The affairs of this life. Now we have to do it to a point because we live in this world. But to the point in which we are entangled by it and that it ties us up and draws us away from that which is r- more important that relates to the kingdom of God and the work of the kingdom of God, then there becomes a problem. There something is out of kilter. There something is unbalanced. There something is wrong. And so no one entangles himself to become entwined And this is what can happen to the Christian. You can get so caught up with so many different things because, you know, and legitimate things. We're not saying it's all evil. You're just getting so busy with things in life that you can neglect that which is most important. So what do you have to do? You have to make your priorities. You have to discipline yourself. So you say, you know what? First things first. That's why the Bible talks about first fruits in time, our lives, our finances, Because you've got to get your priorities right. First, God is first. Oh, I just don't have time for the Lord today. Sorry, that's not good enough. You see, we are uh, to live in such a way that we are not to entangle ourselves because what will happen if you get entangled, you know what? It's hard to untangle yourself sometimes. Have you ever been in that position? Can anyone relate to what I'm saying? Or oh, I'm just talking to the chairs. <laughs> I know what it's like because you can just get so caught up and so now all of a sudden you're tied up and tied up and you're just out of control and you've got no time for the Lord and by the end of the day you're so wearied and tired and, and wasted uh, that these things can overcome you. And so you've got to get control again. You've got to get some discipline back into your life. You've got to set some things in order in order to to do this and to live this life. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Why? The motivation is to please him who enlisted him. Who enlisted us? Jesus did. And we are enlisted into the kingdom of God and there's work to be done. There's a great commission to be fulfilled. There are souls that we have to share the gospel with. There's disciples to be made. There's service in the house of God to the people of God and it's all going to be based on self-sacrifice. That's why Paul would write to the Corinthians in chapter 9 and when he talks about striving for the crown, if you read the previous verses, he's talking about serving all men. I've become all things to all men. He talks about a pattern of self-denial. He says, don't I have the right like everybody else? Don't I have the right to do this? Well, what's wrong with that? It's your right. That's right. It's your right. It's your right to lose the crown too. You see? Because when we start thinking about me, my right, we lose the essence of what this is about. This, this life is about self-sacrifice. It's about self-denial. It's about putting God first. It's making sure that I am, uh, I am uh, I'm pleasing him who enlisted me as a soldier. It's making sure that I'm living a disciplined life in order to achieve according to to the as compared to the athlete that we see in Scripture. And when you look at it like this, as I said to you when I wrote this message, I was challenged and convicted. I, I stand here and preach it, but I don't want to preach it as one who's somehow got it all together and I'm telling you what to do. I'm preaching to myself this morning. So, we've got to examine these things because the day will come there will, when there will be a close scrutiny of our lives. So the question is, am I, am I living as an athlete? Am I, am I living as a soldier? And so we've got to examine ourselves in this, in this area because one day when we stand be- before the beamer seat at the judgment seat of Christ, all of these things will be distinguished. All of these things will come to light. And these are the things that will be weighed. These are the things that will be judged. This is where we will either have a reward or have a loss. And when you th- begin to see it in that context, eternal judgment. So what happens there will set the tone of your eternal dwelling. How does it all work? I can't really tell you exactly. But I know that some people are going to look better than others, (laughs) if I could put it that way. So, we have to consider these things. Now, I don't want to go too far into time and I was going to go through and I want to touch on a couple just quickly. But in light of this, the Bible talks about various crowns. And I don't want to go through all of them for the space of time to examine them as such, but there's a, a number, five that are listed, some will say six, but five in, in, in the scriptures, the crown, in terms of reward. And so the first one is found in, or well, one of them is found in James chapter 1, verse 12. This is, refers to the crown of life. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The Lord has promised to those who love him. Not that those that just, you know, keep the rules. Those that love him, because temptation is there. Temptation comes. And so how will we respond? Because the Bible says that with every temptation, God gives us a way of escape. So we can't blame anyone. When we fail, when we sin, when we fall short, we have to acknowledge these things. But you see, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Amen. Is that a motivation? To overcome sin? To receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, there is a reference to the crown of righteousness. And this, this, again, this is in essence with what we've been dealing with. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Think about that. This is the whole issue of Paul's life, of self-sacrifice. I have been poured out as a drink offering. My whole life has been poured out in service to God, in service to people. It's just being poured out more and everything I've got to give, I'm giving that and more. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. And it's a fight, amen? It's a fight. Every day it's a fight. And that's why we feel weary sometimes. That's why we're prone to discouragement. That's why we're prone to these things. But the Lord would tell us to hold fast. Don't cast away your confidence. Don't be discouraged, which is a loss of courage. You must hold fast. You must press on. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. So I have fought the fight as a soldier. I have finished the race as an athlete. And I have kept the faith. Hallelujah. What words that he could proclaim at the end of his life as he looked back and not that he was—he knew he couldn't judge himself in the ultimate sense, uh, but from what he could see, he was confident enough to make this proclamation in relation to himself. He says, I have kept the faith. He had protected sound doctrine. He had taught. He had contended earnestly for the faith. All of those things in which he gave us the, uh, the, the, the theology that we know today in Christian, in, in Christian life and Christian living. In verse 8 he says, Finally, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You see, Paul's not being selfish here. He's not just, you know, and he wasn't doing it for the crown in and of itself. He did it because of his love for the Lord. But he understood that in God's economy, there is reward and there is loss. And so um, uh, that should uh, come into our evaluation of things and the way in which we live our lives. And so he says, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but all to love, all the who have loved his appearing. There you go, calm. that day. That way, calm knows what I'm saying. Just came to my mind as I read it. On that day. So, in, when we talk about, that's what we're living for. We're living for that day. That day when we stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. And when our lives come, uh, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. How, when we get, are tried, what, have we built our lives with gold, silver, and precious stones, or have we built our lives on hay, wood, hay, and stubble, which will all be burned up? And so we have to live in light of this truth, church. When we talk about eternal judgment as found here, we we have to see it also in the context as as it relates to us. We're not talking here about um, the loss of salvation because the scripture is making the reference there in terms of being saved as through fire, but hey... Why would you want to live this life and build on all those things in this world and then have it all burnt up in the end for nothing? But you can live a life that's self-sacrifice. That's why Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Take up your cross and follow me. That's why people realise that the Christian life means I've got a, Jesus is my Lord and my Saviour. It's not about what I want. It's about not my will but his will. And this is the whole premise and foundation of what it means to serve God. This is the gospel that we preach. And I've seen people who are not prepared to pay that price who say, no, I don't want to take up my cross and, they, and, they, and, they, and they, they turn away from the Lord. And it ought not to be so. And so I want us to consider these things this morning that we would have one and only whom we seek to please and that is Jesus if I can just draw your attention as we conclude, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because here Paul sums it up. We read before verse 10. Now I want to read with you verse 9. He says, therefore, he's just again tying together, he's spoken about the assurance of the resurrection. And so that's what, that's what we're living for, Amen. We've looked at that when we looked at the doctrine of resurrections. The assurance of the resurrection from the dead. And so in light of that, he says this is our aim. He says in verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Well-pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. You see, Paul saying, knowing the terror of the Lord, not as it relates to us uh, in the judgment, but to the unsaved, they need to fear God. Because they need to know the terror of the Lord. Because I tell you, when God's wrath is poured out and that final judgment comes, we're talking about eternal judgment, eternal torment. Knowing the terror of the Lord, what what, what does it do? We persuade men. We've got to tell them, we've got to share the gospel. We've got to let them know. I know that we do that in, here in Australia. Everyone's caught up in there's such, there's such apathy. There's, everyone's caught up in the material. Everyone's caught up in the physical. And everyone wants to, you know, it's pursuing their dreams and all the rest of it. But that bubble will burst eventually. Amen? And as we pray for a revival, we pray for a harvest for this nation. Let it come to the end of itself. Let them reap what they sow. Because I tell you now, it'll come, the, the darkness will come And then, amen, we will stand and we will preach and continue to share the gospel because later, you can read it for yourself, the Bible says, for we are ambassadors for God. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So I'm God's mouth, as though God pleads through me. If I don't open my mouth and speak, then God's not speaking. Now, there's a truth there. God can move outside, he can talk through a donkey if he wants. But the point is, is that we have been appointed to, to this purpose. And shouldn't we not be faithful ambassadors? Because we'll be judged accordingly. Shouldn't we not be living in obedience to the Great Commission? Because that's our responsibility, we'll be judged accordingly. What are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with our time? What are we doing with our money? What are we doing? And this is a challenge to all of us as we consider these things because they're all relevant in the greater context of the kingdom of God. Because nothing that we invest, nothing we give to the Lord is, is lost. Amen. It goes before us into eternity. Praise the Lord. And so let us invest, let us live with this in mind this morning. Blessed be his wonderful name. I want to close just with a quote. And it stuck with me over the years. And uh, people are familiar with Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was the um, American missionary that went to the Orca Indians. And, um, and in his desire to go to this tribe in the South America there in the jungle, untouched by humans, he went there to preach Christ. And you know the story, for those that are familiar, he, he was killed and uh, by these individuals. And he, his life was, uh, and, and, and others, they, they were, they were uh, killed by them. But if you know the story, his wife and others later, the the village and the people and the tribe they received Christ, and there was a great miracle of salvation, where the whole the transformation of their lives, they were delivered from this. Uh, this darkness and the witchcraft and the curse of sin and death that was at work in their midst, and to see them being changed by the gospel. But he was a man who paid with his life to see that come to pass. But you see, that's how the kingdom of God works, as we know it in Jesus. We see it the same principle at work in this instance. But Jim Elliot said these words, and really, let them let us think about it in light of what we've been considering this morning. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I read it again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And how true it is. He gave up his life. But in eternity, he'll receive his reward. He'll receive his crown because everything he committed to God, nothing is lost, amen. But if we don't invest in that which is to come with our lives and if that means death, then so better be. Whatever the Lord wills, that's what I'm prepared to do. And whatever we lose, we lose in this world, we lose nothing in eternity, amen. We're not fools. The world will look at us and say, you're so stupid. Hey, what? you can gain the whole world and lose your own soul. That's stupid. That's the fool. The fool is said in his heart. There is no God. They're the real fools. Yeah. We understand these truths. So we, let us live according to them. That's what I'm trying to exhort us to today. Let us live. Not just understand and speak, but live. And that's a challenge. It just doesn't come automatic and naturally. What comes automatic and naturally is the opposite, actually. That's why we have to be challenged with these things. So let's conclude this morning in a word of prayer.